Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Voorst. I'm your host for the show and one of the pastors at Life Church, and I'm super excited to be out of quarantine and back at my office and recording with my regular podcast microphone. For those of you who don't know, uh, we, our family, was exposed to somebody with COVID, and then uh, my daughter actually got it. She had no symptoms, but um, she and my wife were isolated to one room of the house for an entire uh, 10 days, I believe, and then I just didn't have access to my microphone, but now I do. Uh, I am glad you are with us because we are in a series called Galatians where we are conveniently looking at the book, or I should say the letter, to the Galatian church written by Paul. And we're just going uh, basically verse by verse, talking through what this means. And um, and you're going to hear a sermon from me today uh, where we dive into the second part of chapter 1. Um, it's uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, and this message is called, Which Gospel? Uh, you're going to hear that in just a second, but also, if you are a brand new listener, or maybe you have been listening for a little while but haven't subscribed yet, I want to encourage you to do so, so that you get regular updates from this podcast site, as well as uh, just an encouragement to go check out our website. And if you'd like to give to the work of Life Church, you can go to lifechurchcanton.org slash give. Now, here's the sermon. I'm grateful for a moment like that, to be able to mourn with those who mourn, and to recognize brokenness, to lament, do all of the things that God has called us to do as the people of God. I'm grateful for that. I want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us in person as well as those joining online. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Life Church. We want to make sure that you get connected. Uh, so make sure that you click on any of the links that are in the comment section, and we will be happy to follow up with you and help you take your next steps. I'm just thinking about this. Um, it's church. You know, you really, you really can understand the character of a church, not when things are going well, <laughs> but when things are in crisis. And uh, we've definitely had an opportunity to be invited into that, and I'm grateful for that. And I would say for this church specifically, we've gotten that opportunity to respond to sickness, not just a viral sickness, but a sickness of prejudice, racial injustice. And we'll continue to be the church and to be even more the church in the midst of that. And I think it's also interesting, it strikes me as we go through this letter to the Galatian church, this is the study that we're in, the series that we're in, what the reason this church started is actually because Paul was traveling in this area. He's traveling to Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, and he's actually really sick when he gets to Galatia, and this community comes and takes care of him. They, they, they nurse him back to health, and as they're doing that, Paul begins to unfold the beauty and the mystery of what it means to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. These people, these Gentiles who are not Jews, who are not part of the family originally, are now invited into it because, because of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Such a beautiful message. I'm grateful, too, um, the last couple of weeks, I was out. Um, our family got exposed to COVID. None of us got it except for my daughter, who got it for a second time. She got it last year. This time, fortunately, she didn't necessarily have any symptoms, but she and my wife were isolated to a room, and then uh, me and my other two kids were hanging out in the rest of the house. And we're over a year into this, of doing life like this now, right? Like doing life in a pandemic. Some of us are still working from home. I'm just curious, anybody in the room, you're still having to work from home? Yeah, and you're sharing your house with uh, a spouse, maybe kids, maybe animals that all need your attention simultaneously, right? Like this is getting 
maybe a little old for some of us, I'm sure, but maybe we're grateful for the work as well. Who knows? Uh, but I'm, I'm in quarantine, and I'm trying to do all of the things that I have to do, and I, I, I just... I needed to prepare for this sermon, honestly, and I wanted to go into another room and just open up my Bible and just sit with it and try to write. And so what I did, and you've all done this before, parents, you've like negotiated with your kids, like bribed them maybe even to try to get them to do certain, something as a specific way, try to get them to behave a certain way. And so what I did is to two of my kids, because the other, my wife and daughter were upstairs in another room, I said, okay, guys, I, I just need you to like get along, okay? Just like be kind, don't do anything stupid, and like, I just, I just have to do this thing. I just have to write a sermon, okay? I'm like doing spiritual stuff, all right? So like, this is really important. And they look at me like deer in headlights, like, okay, fine. I take a couple steps over into the other room. I open up my Bible, and I read the verse, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon, which coincidentally uh, is interesting that I read that verse because literally what I hear in the other room is, stop it! Like right away, I close my Bible, I get up, I walk out the door, and I go in there, and I'm just like, this is going to be a moment where I can use Scripture on my kids. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from my instruction. All I did was told, tell you to be kind, and you couldn't even do it. Like not even 15 seconds has gone by, and already, you know, pastors talk to their kids like this too, okay? Super frustrated, and they're looking at me, and they're like, we forgot, sorry. And I'm like, it's 15 seconds. How many of you do this? Like, when you give an instruction, how do you respond when you give an instruction and they, it just doesn't get followed? Maybe by kids or maybe by somebody else. Now, for my kids, I get it. They're kids, right? Like, their brains aren't fully developed. They don't fully understand what's going on. But what about when adults are involved? Like, if, if you give an instruction to another adult and they don't follow it, how do you feel then? Or what if you're on the receiving end of that instruction and you don't follow it? Like, why is that? Why don't we follow instructions? And I think there's probably one of three reasons, maybe. I think, for instance, maybe we just disregard it. We just don't want to. We don't like the instructions, so we don't want to do what it is that you're asking me to do. Or maybe, maybe we actually do forget. We just forget. I, didn't, I don't even remember what the instruction was, and so we don't follow the instruction because we forgot. Or maybe it's because we were influenced from an outside source. Maybe there's another force at work that was getting us to believe something else, that was getting us to do something else, and so therefore we inevitably disregarded the idea or forgot the idea altogether in the instruction. And the reason I bring this up is because last week uh, Nathan started us in this series to the Galatians, and he said Paul is prepping them for a letter, and this is going to be a letter of rebuke, of correction. Why? Well, usually you correct somebody when they have gone a different way, when, when you've given them an instruction, but they didn't follow that instruction or they didn't follow that understanding of belief or concept, whatever it is that you gave them, they've gone the other way. And so he's coming at them with a fiery rebuke. He's upset. He's really upset. And now as we continue in this letter, we're going to find out a little bit more about why he's upset and what's actually going on. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, You've already heard this part. I am shocked that you are turning away so soon, so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news, 
than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news, let that person be cursed. Any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So, we don't necessarily get all of the emotion right away in this letter, but he is using some specific words that would highlight that he's pretty upset. I'm shocked. I'm so surprised. Like, for my kids, it wasn't so much that they disregarded the instruction that they gave them. It was that it was 15 seconds hadn't even passed, and already they had gone the other way. I'm shocked that so soon you have turned away. Turned away from what? From God. From the grace and mercy that you received from God. Why would you turn away from that? This is the most beautiful, life-altering, life-transforming message, and you've turned away from it. Paul is absolutely appalled why they would jettison from the grace and mercy found in Jesus, only found in Jesus. For some reason, they decided that the grace and mercy of Jesus isn't enough. And what happens, what we find out in verse 6, is you're not even following that way. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news. Well, what is that different way? Well, if you heard the message last week from Pastor Nathan, he talked about this different way called circumcision. This is, to put it lightly, a surgery for the men, okay? Uh, this, is, this is what they're called to do or, or instructed to do in order to receive salvation from God. They were led to believe that this is what you had to do to be accepted, to be adopted into the family of God. You must get circumcised. Now, this seems a little bit odd that this would be the goal here. And, and what would be the issue with that? Why would that be a concern? Well, something that's important to understand about the context in Galatia is that they're heavily a Greek-influenced society. And so what's common is, um, is nudity. Now, at first, when I'm learning about circumcision, like, and I, as a guy, I'm just like, wouldn't I just lie? Like, wouldn't I just be like, all right, we're all coming together as a community and be like, all right, uh, remember, we all have to get circumcised, okay? So let's check, everybody get circumcised, everybody? Yeah, you, Jared? Yeah, yeah, I did mine last week. I'm good, I'm good. Um, a little sore, but you can move on by. I'm into the family of God now. Hey, all right, cool. Like, wouldn't you just lie, right? But you couldn't because in that society, nudity is actually pretty common. Like, the idea of private parts wasn't necessarily a thing. If you've ever seen any Greek or Roman sculptures and artwork, they're all nude, aren't they? Like, they show it all. And they're beautiful, right? Like, they're amazing works of art. And if they actually looked like that, all I can think is, I didn't even know you could have muscles there. <laughs> like, they're just glorious. And, and so nudity is prevalent. So you're going to know if things are done to your body. But on top of that, in Greek society, what they would do is, is they really took care of the body as you can see in some of their artwork. They, they took care of it. There's beauty there. And if you altered it or, 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 or um, mutilated it in any way, that was actually considered dishonoring. It was very shameful. Very shameful. You'd be an outcast in society if you adjusted your body in some specific way, if you mutilated your body. So given those two ideas and those two concepts within that context... This is a big deal. Circumcision is actually a very big deal. This is a very challenging task that they're being led to believe that they should do in order to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And yet they still do it. They still do it. They still follow this different way that pretends to be the good news, which has to make you wonder why. It makes me think that another force was at work. Why don't people follow instructions? Either they disregard it, they forget it, or they're influenced 
from an outside source. These Gentile Christians in Galatia were influenced. They were manipulated by an outside source, these Judaizers. There's got to be a reason why they would choose to do something so challenging, such, uh, such a burden. Why would they go that extra mile? They were manipulated into this. They were influenced into this. And you can, you can do any number of uh, fear and manipulation to get people to do something that they wouldn't normally do. But here's the thing. They had to twist the message. See what Paul says? This is, a, this is a very crucial point in the message here that they deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. They twist it. It's not like, here's the truth over here, and they twisted it, and now it's like way over here. No, no, no. You twist it so that it, it's still actually pretty believable. It, it, it still kind of looks and feels and sounds and smells like the thing, but isn't the thing, but you wouldn't know it because it's so close to the actual thing. They just twist it. They twisted the truth to get them to get circumcised, to believe this false gospel that's, that's really not good news at all. This is horrible news. And, and, and what they did is they twisted the message that the grace and mercy of Jesus is enough. No, it's actually not enough. You need to get circumcised in order to receive salvation. And it makes me think about this, this illustration. Have you ever seen the movie The Incredibles 2, the second one? If you haven't, I'm sorry for spoiler alerts, but it, it's been out long enough now, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, the villain in the movie, so just a little bit of backdrop, there's, this is a movie about superheroes. It's a kid's movie about superheroes, this family, they all have superpowers, uh, they're now being celebrated, and they get to be uh, utilized in society to help, you know, fix the world, fix the world in a broken place. And, and there's a villain in the movie. The villain in this particular one, in Incredibles 2, is named uh, the Screenslaver. And the screenslaver uses screens, as you can imagine, phones, tablets, TVs, computers, whatever, to sort of manipulate people. This is, a, this is something that they're already using, but the screenslaver is able to use the communication network to sort of override it and start to manipulate people, use fear to manipulate them and twist things to get them to do things that they might not otherwise do. And there's this moment in the movie where the screenslaver uh, sort of gives its manifesto. It's got everybody's attention, and this is what the screenslaver says to everybody that's watching. You don't talk. You watch talk shows. You don't play games. You watch game shows. Travel, relationships, risk, every meaningful experience must be packaged and delivered to you to watch at a distance so that you can remain ever sheltered ever passive, ever ravenous consumers who can't free themselves to rise from their couches, break a sweat, never anticipate new life. You want super, superheroes to protect you and make yourselves even more powerless in the process. Well, you tell yourselves you're being looked after, that you're inches away from being served and your rights are being upheld so that the system can keep stealing from you, smiling at you all the while. Go ahead. Send your supers to stop me. Grab your snacks, watch your screens, and see what happens. You are no longer in control. I am. I'm sitting in the movie theater with my kids watching this movie like, oh my gosh, oh, what did I just experience? Like, I felt like the screenslaver just took me to church in the movie theater. Like, I just experienced something profound. That was deep. I was convicted. I was looking at my kids like, are you getting this? This is amazing. This is really good. In fact, in movies like this, you're supposed to hate the villain, right? You're like, ah, I don't want anything to do with that. But I'm like, screenslavers preaching here. Like, this is good. This is actually really good stuff here. Just consumers, right? 
But then what happens throughout the rest of the movie is they continue to manipulate people through the use of screens. They, they start to get them to do things that they wouldn't normally do. See, you can be convinced of almost anything with just the right amount of fear and manipulation. And Paul says, you've been tricked. You've been fooled. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you been tricked into believing something about Jesus that isn't true? Have you been tricked into believing something? That actually the grace and mercy of Jesus isn't enough? That you actually need to be something more? You need to do something more? You need some kind of a behavioral modification? Or in this case, a bodily modification? Is that what needs to happen? Have you been tricked? And, and maybe a better question to ask is, how would you know? How would you know if you've been tricked? Because if you are currently being tricked, you wouldn't know. You're like, well, no, I believe this thing. That's the whole point of twisting the truth. That's the whole point of a trick is that it gets you to believe. It's believable. It's palatable. Here's the thing. We have to understand where the distinctions are. If, if we want to understand if we're being twisted, if we're being tricked into something else, we have to understand where the distinctions are. And here's the thing is that last week, Pastor Nathan talked about Bible literacy among Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian, you don't believe in all of this, you're just checking things out, there is no expectation that you would know your Bible, okay? There just isn't. So you're off the hook. But for those of us who have claimed to be followers of Jesus for quite some time, who know nothing about the Scriptures, like, we need to talk about that, right? Like, why don't we understand Jesus? Why don't we understand the kingdom of God? Why don't we understand what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Have we read our scriptures? And so we recognized this in our youth ministry at the church that I used to work at before this. It was a large youth ministry, and, um, and we started recognizing that, wow, they really don't know the Bible, and so we need to talk about the Bible a lot more. And in order to expose that concept, we played this game with them called In the Bible or Not in the Bible. It's pretty self-explanatory. We just gave them phrases and verses and sentences uh, and then they had to just determine, is it in the Bible or not in the Bible? Now, the reason we did this is because there's so many different ideas and thoughts and, and, and phrases out there in our society that kind of sound like they could be in the Bible, but are also sort of all wrapped up in American Christendom. It's sort of American prosperity and the American dream mixed with Jesus. It all kind of congeals together, so it all starts to sound the same. For example, I'll just, we'll play around. You just shout out back to me if you think it's in the Bible or not in the Bible. Let's do this phrase. Everything happens for a reason. In the Bible or not in the Bible? It sounds kind of like something Peter would say, maybe. Maybe Timothy, I don't know. It sounds like it. No, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Scriptures. But we have come to believe that, well, everything happens for a reason. But we don't really know what we mean when we say that. How about this one? Money is the root of all evil. Yeah, it's a, kind of a trick one. Yes, technically it's in the Bible, but it's an incomplete statement. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, but we don't always necessarily want to do that. We want to blame the money. We don't want to blame our relationship to our money. How about this one? Uh, when you die, you get your angel wings. Now, a little bit of laughter uh, because we're like, yeah, that one's not in the Bible, but if you do this in youth ministry, they're like, wait, what? I've seen the cartoons. They give you angel wings when you die. That's how it works, Jared. They're really frustrated by this one for whatever reason. Now, if you're a student and you're sitting there and you're reacting the same way that you're frustrated, you can come talk to me afterward and we'll have some healing prayer. But here's the thing. This is not in the Bible. This is not an, a thing. How about this one? Love your enemies. Yeah, shoot, that one's in the Bible. Yeah, that one is in there. So that's too bad, right? We don't, 
we don't like that one. We don't want, could we just get a Sharpie and like, nah, that one doesn't, that doesn't work with me. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Oof. Mm. Is this the right translation? I don't know. We don't know our Bibles. And the Galatians, they're brand new Christians. They're baby Christians at this. So, so they're just learning things. What about circumcision? You have to get circumcised in order to be part of the family of God. For all they know, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess so. That probably sounds right. That sounds good. And, and in fact, it is in the Bible. So technically, it's biblical because it's in there. And it is. It's, it's actually, actually kind of foundational to them as a people of God, to the Hebrew people. And you see this in Torah, their, their original writings of Scripture, the 613 laws, all of what it means to be part of the family of God. These are certain behavioral and bodily modifications that you have to adjust to in order to be part of the family of God. So yeah, it's, it's in there. So it doesn't, it doesn't sound like, whoa, that's way out of left field. No, this is actually, it kind of sounds like truth. And they went for it. They believed it. Because these outside influencers, these Judaizers, forced them, manipulated them into understanding that, no, you have to do this. The grace and mercy of Jesus, it's not enough for your belonging. You got to do this too. Makes me wonder, like, why? Why do they care? Why, why do the Judaizers care? about doing this. What's in it for them? What benefit is it to them? Is it just a matter of like they want to be in control? Or is it, it this sort of old curmudgeon parent or grandparent? They're like, well, I had to do it this way, so you're going to do it too. How many of you parents have said that to your kids? Never, never. I've never said that to my kids. Is it they just want to be in control and you know, keep things the way that they were? Or, and this is actually kind of um, uh, debated among scholars, but some of them believe that Judaizers believed that if they could just get all of the males circumcised, that God's kingdom would fully reign. It might sound like a weird concept to you and I in the modern world, but this is what they believed, that if you could follow these rules just the right way, then God's kingdom will come on earth and everything will be okay again. Then we'll fix things. Is that why they did this? Is that what their motivation was? Is that they could twist God into their desires? Is it a matter of they just wanted to cling to the past? Well, this is the way it's always been done for hundreds of years. You're going to do it too. Even though somebody else comes along and says, no, there's a better way. There's actually a better way. Not just a better way, but it's actually the best way because what it does is it gets rid of all of this other stuff. Because all of this other stuff wasn't working completely. Your 613 laws just reveal how much of a failure you are because you can't uphold these laws. Circumcision included. Only Jesus can embody this perfection, this perfect law within himself. And then when he dies, he puts to death the reliance on the law. The reliance on following all of these rules to try to sort of earn your way to salvation. Jesus says, no, 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 do away from that, just come to me. Just follow me. And through my grace and mercy, now you are adopted as sons and daughters of God. The rules don't work anymore. There's a better way. It's the best way. But we cling to the past because it feels familiar, it feels comfortable, don't we? We ask you, point blank, do you ever cling to the past? even when it creates more burden for you or for others? Do we just want to go back to the way things were? See, here's the thing. Paul has a harsh message for leading people astray. 
is a harsh message, certainly for the Galatians who have gone the other way, but I like to believe that there are probably some Judaizers listening in as they read this letter aloud, and so his message is also for them. Let God's curse fall on anyone. And then he repeats himself. He repeats himself because in that day and age, in the ancient world, you would often repeat yourself when you wanted to try to get a message across. That was a literary technique that they would use uh, because they don't have screens. They don't have Twitter where you can just write in all caps, right? Like, this is how he's trying to get his point across. Let God's curse fall on anyone who leads them astray, who preaches a different gospel that is not good news at all. It's actually horrible news. Horrible news that you would begin to understand or start to believe that Jesus and his grace and mercy isn't enough, that you still have to do things to earn your way to heaven. That's horrible news. Paul says, let a curse fall on them for this. And Paul isn't just like pulling this language out of nowhere. He's not just like making up this idea of letting God's curse fall. This is, this is very similar to the way Jesus talks. There's a moment in the book of Matthew where Jesus is with a crowd of people. There's, there's some young people nearby, and Jesus is speaking to these young people. But then some adults come along, and he has an instruction for the adults. He says, if any of you lead one of these young ones away or lead them astray, it would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea. Okay? What's a millstone? Like a tiny little rock? No, it's 3,000 pounds. So you're going you're gonna to drown. Tie it to your neck and be drowned in the sea. It would be better for you to do that than to lead a young person astray. You think Jesus is serious about how we lead our young people? What we get them to believe? how we develop them, how we help them to grow in their understanding of who God is and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you think that's a huge responsibility? It is. It absolutely is. And I, I began to feel this when I was, like I said, in youth ministry. I got a job at my last church in 2006, and when I got the job, um, I, the, the youth ministry was already pretty large. It was about 1,000 students, middle school and high school students, so it's a big deal. It's kind of the biggest show in town. They had a lot of money. They did a lot of fun things, entertaining things, um, and it, you know, it was very attractional. But here's the thing is what we were realizing is that the numbers would drop off significantly into high school, and then they would almost completely drop off when they got to college or into the workforce. They just left the church altogether. And we began to wonder, like, what in the world is going on? We're doing all of the things right. We had all these kids coming to our youth ministry. Yay, look at us. We we're constantly judged by our numbers. We were considered successful because we were the largest youth ministry in town. But it wasn't sticking. None of it seemed to matter. And then about the same time, a book came out. The book was called Almost Christian. And it highlighted youth ministry. It highlighted specifically these students who grew up in the church, grew up going to youth ministry, but then graduated, went into the workforce, went into college. And by about their freshman, sophomore year in college, that's when these authors uh, started getting some of their data. <clears throat> and what they were finding is that many of these students uh, basically just walked away from the church altogether. And they would say, well, describe your youth ministry experience. What did you learn about? And what they found is that they couldn't really articulate their faith, or at least the gospel by any stretch of the imagination. Instead, what they were articulating all kind of started to sound the same. And the authors developed a name for this. Sounds really fancy. Moralistic therapeutic deism. This is what they called what they were learning from these students, freshmen and sophomores in college. 
Moralistic therapeutic deism. Sounds fancy. It's a pretty simple idea. Moralistic. That you're just supposed to be a good person. Just follow all the rules, do all the right stuff, don't get into too much trouble. Moralism. Therapeutic. Live a life that makes you feel good. Just kind of do the things that make you feel good, make you feel better about yourself. That's really the point of life. And then deism. Deism. Well, th th there's probably a God, um, and, and Jesus is, is probably God too, and I'm okay with that, but deism is more of this idea that there's a figure sort of off in the distance that sort of set things in motion, set creation in motion, and just sort of let it be, and, and isn't really involved in the intricate details of life. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. As these students were describing their upbringing in youth ministry at their church, this is what they were describing. The gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism. What's the problem with that? Well, if you make a mistake, you're no longer moral. If you don't feel good, you're no longer therapeutic. And if God really isn't involved with the brokenness of our world, with the injustices that we experience, well, then the church must not care about that either. So I'm going to walk away from the church and my faith altogether. Easy decision, right? If there's really no foundation there to articulate the gospel, to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's super easy to walk away. And we read this and we're like, we are super convicted. We have to change what we're doing. And so instead, what we did is we just started getting into the gospel, started talking about Jesus, started talking about the beauty of who he is and the beauty of grace and mercy, started talking about discipleship and discipling our students. And here's the thing, the youth ministry didn't shrink. Amazing, right? It actually started to stick. It was beautiful. We were beginning to see life transformation happen. We were beginning to hear uh, back from students who graduated and then called us back or emailed us, and they were like, my, my faith is so strong, and I, and I get to participate in what God is doing right now. Now, here's the thing. Nobody seemed to really care about that in our church and in our community. They just kept looking at us like, oh, you're the biggest youth ministry in town. You're judged successful by your numbers. I didn't care about that. I didn't care about any of that. I wanted our students to be prepared for suffering. I wanted them to be prepared for when they were going to make mistakes. Not if, but when they were going to make mistakes, when they were going to have doubts about their faith, but that they could still confront Jesus and that God wouldn't scorn them because of their doubts. That's what I cared about. I didn't care about the numbers. Which I think is an interesting segue into what Paul talks about. Verse 10, he says, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people. I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were the goal, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. He is wanting to stick to the true gospel. But let me ask you this question. What different gospels are you subscribing to? Do you subscribe to a gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism? Just got to be a good person. Just not, don't make mistakes. I just live life to feel good. I go to church to feel good. I feel better about myself. That's what I want to come to church. I want to hear how I'm a good person and then leave feeling better than when I came. And I want to know that God's kind of in control, um, but I don't want him like intricately involved in my life necessarily. Does that resonate with you? What different gospels are you subscribing to? Paul's not concerned about approval here. He's not concerned about numbers and just getting more people to follow a certain way. And that's a big deal, right? 
because especially in churches for pastors, they are deeply, in some cases, insecure about the numbers because they're constantly judged by the numbers. How big of a church do you have? How big of a youth ministry do you have? And so they've got to get more people to come to their church. They are driven by likes and comments and shares. And if they're driven by those things enough, then they might even be okay with altering their gospel, with adjusting the message just a little bit, just to make it a little bit more attractive, to make it a little bit more palatable so that the numbers go up. That's why we have a thing called celebrity pastors. They have tons of influence on a ton of people. Which gospel is it? Which gospel is being preached? Is it a gospel of prosperity? Is it a gospel of just being a moral person? Is it a gospel of feeling better about yourself? What happens when those things go away? What gospel do we have then? Paul says, if this is about me getting approval, I want no part of it. That's no gospel at all. It actually makes me think about the youth ministry here. Right, so like my youth ministry experience, I came... And immediately there were like a thousand kids and we just got to build on that. Here, it's a little bit different. I've only been here for two years, but when I came two years ago, the youth ministry was already in some transition. They had experienced tons of change and that's difficult. Absolutely feel for a church that has to deal with so much change. Yeah, that's hard. But along that process, there was also maybe some lost identity as well. Like, who are we? What kind of a youth ministry are we supposed to be? What should we be doing with our time and with our students? And then COVID hit and made it that much more difficult to try to connect with students. It's really, really hard. And so, naturally, people left. Youth ministry just isn't really doing it for me anymore. It's not as fun anymore. I, just, I don't really get to see my friends anymore. And so all of a sudden, opportunities started popping up to like go and be where more kids were. And I can go and be with my friends over there. And then I actually got to have some conversations with some families who made a really hard decision to leave the church because they wanted their students to be involved with a bigger church and a bigger youth ministry so their kids could have a little bit more flexibility for their sports and have more fun. And I get that. I do. I really do. I get it. But students and parents of students, let's not be surprised if we get to beyond high school and if all they ever had was just a good, fun church experience with their friends but never really shaped by the gospel, never really led into discipleship. Let's not be surprised when they leave the faith and the church because it wasn't working for them anymore. Because all of a sudden they realized that actually what they were given was a gospel of moralistic therapeutic deism, that you're just supposed to be a good person, just make good decisions, just do things that make you feel better about yourself. God's involved, but really he's just sort of your ticket to heaven when you die. What we told our students is, if that's what you subscribe to, don't waste your time. Don't, you don't, like, don't even come to church, actually, because it's a complete waste of your time to sit there and to listen to some opinionated person on stage talk about how to be a better civil citizen in society. And, and I remember looking out as I said that to students in our youth ministry, and they would look back at me like, are, are you serious? Like, can I go now, actually? Are you serious? I can leave? But then what happened is they were actually, like, intrigued. They were like, okay, I haven't heard that before. Like, I'm I'm actually going to stick around and see what you have to say. (laughs) Let's not waste our time. 
with some cheap gospel of trying to be a better person. What is the point of that? We are invited into the gospel, the good news, and it's good news because we didn't have to do anything to earn it. Christ came and through his grace and mercy invited us into something that we could never do for ourselves. And now we are invited into very intense discipleship. This is what we're supposed to be about. And Paul says, if it's about getting numbers, if it's about approval, that's no gospel at all. And when I think about the youth ministry here, and and the reasons we hired Roger, right? Like he is absolutely passionate about discipleship. He is absolutely passionate about sharing the gospel with students and sticking to it, committing to it. And here's the thing, that doesn't get a whole lot of approval. It's not super popular. It's just not. It's not cool. It's not sexy. And here's the thing, I got to start my youth ministry experience with already a thousand kids. He's kind of starting from scratch. But guess what? We're constantly judging people and ministries and leaders by the numbers. And I told Roger when he started, I said, I do not care about the numbers. I do not, I'm not going to sit here and say, well, you got to grow it by 25% each year. I don't care. I want students who are committed to understanding Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and growing in discipleship. I would rather have 10 kids in the youth ministry who graduate from high school and go off and change the world because they were so impacted by Jesus than those who walk away from the faith because it was a weak faith to begin with. We hired Roger to start it from scratch and to build something with a sustainable, strong foundation that is going to set students, you up, for ultimate success. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple who makes other disciples. And it's hard work to rebuild the youth ministry from the ground up. It just is. But guess what? It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. I am not subscribing to a gospel of moralistic, therapeutic deism because it's dead. It doesn't work. Paul says, which gospel are you subscribing to? Don't don't go with the one that pretends to be good news because it's actually horrible news. We're going to continue as we go throughout this letter to understand what this true gospel actually looks like and how beautiful it really is. That's what we're committing to. But before we get there, I have some action steps for you for this week. Some things to think about. I want you to take an assessment of yourself. Do a self-assessment for the next week. If you need a journal, if that's helpful, do that. But as I was describing moralistic therapeutic deism, is that what you subscribe to? Is that the kind of gospel that you follow? Just trying to make good decisions, trying to feel good, trying to get to heaven when you die. Is that your gospel? And, and allow God to work at your heart. And if that's not doing it for you, because you're going to make mistakes, you're going to have doubts, you're going to not feel good at times. If that's you, I want you to run back to Jesus, and he will be right there. Do a self-assessment. 
Secondly, I want you to continue to read Galatians, but additionally, I want you to look at some resources. We have some resources on our Now page, uh, lifechurchcanton.org slash now. There's a resource that Nathan talked about last week. Um, There was a Right Now Media video. It was a really cool video. I got an opportunity to watch it. I've added another one. It's from the Bible Project. They put these really creative videos together, and they give an overview of the book of Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians. Watch it by yourself. Watch it with your family. I watch it with my kids, and we sit and we talk about it afterwards. And then thirdly, I want you to commit to praying for life youth. Maybe you don't have students. Pray for them. Pray for our life youth that are involved, that are in this formative time of their lives where they're beginning to learn what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus and preparing them for discipleship, not just some future date, but right now, in this moment. But also, if you're a student or a parent of a student, I want you to commit to life youth. Commit to it. Be present at it. Go through it. Even if it feels hard, even if it feels awkward because we're rebuilding from the ground up, I know it's easier to just want to be with your friends and to want to be where it's fun, but if you truly want to be a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you into this. Commit to life youth. Parents, we have an opportunity to model something beautiful for our kids that we don't just leave when things get hard, but we stick to it because this is what Jesus does. Think about this verse. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This is what we model. I want you to stand if you're able. And for some of you, as I was beginning to talk about the grace and mercy of Jesus, maybe you have been fed this line. Maybe you've been fooled, maybe by a church or maybe by somewhere else in culture, that you're just supposed to do enough, be enough, in order to achieve some kind of a salvation and success in this world. It's not going to work. And I want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus. If you've never stepped into that kind of relationship before, I want to encourage you to step out in faith. And so you might pray along with me something like this. God, I have been searching I do look around and I I can't seem to make all of the right choices. I don't always just feel good about myself and even if I try, it fails. Sometimes I feel like you're distant, like you actually don't care about the details of my life. But in this moment now, I'm hearing about a different kind of God that I've never heard about before. Who in, in Christ, in Jesus, actually extends grace and mercy to me not by anything that I could do, but simply because of his love. I want to belong to you. I believe in you. And for those of us who need that recommitment, maybe we're like my kids who 15 seconds later, we have amnesia. We forget about God's grace and mercy and we start to add things to our life. We start to believe that we have to do a certain thing in order to belong to God. Let's recommit to God's grace this morning. God, we give our lives to you. In Jesus' name.
Well, thank you again for listening to this message. And um, if you would like to get connected or, or to pray with anybody, uh, you can do that by going to our now page. It's lifechurchcanton.org slash now. And if you're on our podcast show notes, uh, all of those links are available in the show notes for you to be able to get connected, uh, for you to get some prayer if you would like to give. All of those things are right there for you. Um, And please reach out if you need anything. Uh, We are connecting with people digitally, not just in the Canton area, but really all over. We have people listening from uh, Michigan, absolutely, but also from Texas, from Tennessee, from Florida, uh, somebody from Arizona, I believe, and um, and and recently somebody from St. Louis who wants to get plugged in as well. So uh, we would love to hear from you and connect with you and help you take your next steps. Have a great rest of your day.